Welcome to Historical Jesus. I'm Mark Vinette. The Bible is the most significant book in the Western canon. It's also the book upon which the post-antiquity Western civilization was built upon. Let's delve into the origins of this immensely important and influential book. Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast has graciously agreed to share with us his views on the history of this remarkable book. In this special episode, we examine the Old Testament as we begin our deep survey of the Bible in search of the historical Jesus. What is the Bible? Set aside the New Testament for the moment. What is the Old Testament? That depends on who you ask. Jews, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, and the Church of the East all include different books in their canons. A Catholic Bible has more books than a Protestant Bible. A Greek Orthodox Bible has yet more books. The Russian Orthodox throw in a few extras, and the Bible of the Church of the East is a veritable IKEA catalogue. There's really no such thing as the Bible. The concept only makes sense if you ask, whose Bible? Each faith has its own definition of the canon of books. How each arrived at its canon is a process lost to time, although we often know when each faith locked down its sacred books. Not only do the faiths disagree about the books to be included, but they also argue about the content of those books, about which is the legitimate textual tradition. The Jews call the Old Testament the Tanakh, which is an acronym of its three divisions, Torah, Nevim, and Ketuvim. There is no good English equivalent for Torah, although at a stretch you could use law or instruction. Nevim can be translated as prophets, and Ketuvim as the dull term writings. It seems this threefold division dates back to the 2nd century BC, when Israel was a client state in the Hellenistic empires founded after Alexander the Great. The Torah contains five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the very heart of the Bible. These were the first books to be accepted as holy in the Jewish community. Nevim, prophets, is divided in two, former and latter. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings. Here you'll find the sagas of Joshua and Saul and David and Solomon, the stories of Elijah and Elisha, and all the history of the Jews from the conquest of Canaan to the fall of the kingdom of Judah. The second section, Latter Prophets, consists of the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and one book called The Twelve, which contains all the prophets from Hosea to Malachi. Both Torah and Nevim had become authoritative by the time of the Maccabean Revolt in 167 BC, the independence movement that led to a short-lived Jewish kingdom before the Romans took over. By that time, the standing of the Torah was unquestioned. It was universally agreed that the prophetic tradition had ended with Malachi, who wrote during the Persian period when the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon. The final section of the Tanakh, Etuvim, Writings, is a motley collection. Daniel, Ezra, Chronicles, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and the group called the Five Scrolls, or Megalot, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. The Five Scrolls are each read out at a major festival. Song of Songs is read during Passover, Ruth at Shavuot, the Festival of Weeks, Lamentations at Tishabav, Ecclesiastes during Sukkot, Tabernacles, and Esther during Purim. Ketuvim also includes Daniel and the books of Ezra and Chronicles. Ketuvim was the last collection to become authoritative. The rabbis had serious reservations about certain books that were eventually included, notably Daniel, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. On the other hand, numerous other documents held spiritual authority and bid fair to be included in any authoritative collection of Hebrew scriptural texts. We know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that while the Jews were governed by the Persians, then later the Greeks, there was a creative explosion of writings. The books of Maccabees, the wisdom of Ben Siddiq, Tobit, Judith, the books of Enoch, Baloch, Jubilees, the Apocalypse of Abraham, 
the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, dozens and dozens of them written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. The rabbis believe that most of these are actually late Christian inventions. What the Dead Sea Scrolls prove was that the rabbis were wrong in that regard, that all the extra-canonical books had Hebrew originals and that they were highly regarded in at least some Jewish communities. And the scrolls also proved that the Jewish canon was in flux at the time the scrolls were written. Which book made it into the writings was decided in the 2nd century AD, at the height of the Roman Empire, after the Romans had crushed a great revolt in the province of Judea in 70 AD. The criteria for inclusion are uncertain, but we can perhaps find three. A book was included only if it was written in Hebrew, although dashes of Aramaic were allowed. Then the book had to be old, and to be old it had to be authored by a great figure from the past. Ecclesiastes squeaked in because its author was thought to be Solomon, even though it contained dubious theology. Likewise with the Song of Songs. Finally, the rabbis rejected some books because they were beyond the pale. Maccabees, for example, taught that you could pray for the dead. And some books supported the views of the emerging Christian community far too much for the rabbis' liking. Their result was a canon of 24 books. The Christians ended up with all the books the Jews considered sacred, and many they did not. And for that, we have to thank the Septuagint. The Septuagint is one of the two great textual traditions behind the Bible. The first, and most important, is called the Masoretic tradition of texts. The Masoretes were Jewish scribes and scholars who worked in the Middle East between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Norman conquest of England in the 11th century AD. They took it upon themselves to copy the biblical texts with great care to preserve them from generation to generation. It was absolutely critical to them that the Torah be preserved exactly as it was from the days of Moses himself, for it was the word of God. A single error of transcription, a single letter wrong, was a sin. They faced fearsome problems. Hebrew, like its related languages Phoenician and Canaanite, has only consonants and no vowels. The first language to use vowels in its alphabet was Greek. If English were the same, the letters BT could mean bit, or but, or bet, or bat, or about, for that matter. Why God blessed the Jews with such a defective writing system is a question no doubt best left to the rabbis. Things would have been a lot simpler if the Masoretes had photocopiers or digital media. The Masoretes were concerned that Hebrew was fading as a spoken language. They also wanted a system that would help them copy the biblical texts with absolute accuracy. The Ben Asher family invented a way of marking vowels, and also marking accents and musical notes that Jews could use when the text was chanted in the synagogue. They invented a set of symbols to aid copyists. These symbols gave the scribe copying the text information about unusual forms or words that should not be changed. For instance, they might put a circle over a word that occurred nowhere else in the Bible. In the margin, they would then put a letter which told the scribe, Yes, this is a unique word, but it is not an error, so just copy it the way it is. The notes at the top or bottom of a page would usually give more information about the symbols in the side margins. The oldest copy of the Masoretic text of the Tanakh we have is called the Leningrad Codex, written in 1009 AD. It is called a codex because it is a book rather than a scroll. Until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was the oldest Hebrew text known. It is used as the basis for almost all printed editions of the Tanakh and is regarded as the definitive text, capping over a thousand years of scribal copying. The second great textual tradition, the Septuagint, which means roughly 72, is the name given to a translation of the Hebrew canon into Greek, begun in the Egypt of King Ptolemy II in about 270 BC, some 50 years after the death of Alexander the Great. Hebrew had always been the language of a small community. For centuries, Jewish traders and intellectuals had also spoken Aramaic, the lingua franca of the entire Middle East. By 270 BC, Hebrew was fading as the language of everyday Jewish life, although it survived as the language of schooling and liturgy. Think Latin. 
the Greeks brought a new common language and the need for a new translation. The historian Josephus relates the origin of the Septuagint, quoting at length from what is almost certainly a fictitious letter from a Greek author called Aristeus to his brother Philocrates. But who worries about fiction when a good story is being told? According to the letter of Aristeus, Ptolemy wrote to Jerusalem, quote, King Ptolemy sends greeting to the high priest Eleazar. Since there are many Jews settled in our realm who were carried off from Jerusalem by the Persians at the time of their power, and many more who came with my father into Egypt as captives, and I, when I ascended the throne, adopted a kindly attitude towards all my subjects, and more particularly to those who were citizens of yours. Now since I am anxious to show my gratitude to these men and to the Jews throughout the world, I have determined that your law shall be translated from the Hebrew tongue into the Greek language, that these books may be added to the other royal books in my library. It will be a kindness on your part if you will select six elders from each of your tribes, men of noble life and skilled in your law, and able to interpret it, that in questions of dispute we may be able to discover the verdict in which the majority agree, for the investigation is of the highest possible importance. End quote. The high priest was more than happy to oblige. He sent 72 scholars to Alexandria to each translate the entire Torah, the task they finished in 72 days. Legend later had it that each translation was found to be identical, thus sanctifying the godly enterprise. From that number of scholars and of days we have the text's name, the Septuagint, 72. Other Hebrew texts were translated in the decades after and came to form the first great written version of the Bible. I'm Mark Vinette. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y using the code 30605.